Hi, it's Jay Mueller from Bad Producer Productions. Thanks for listening to this podcast. It's one of seven we currently produce. They include The Garrett, Team Effort, Childproof by Tony Martin and Geraldine Quinn, Game Changers with Craig Bruce, In the Pocket NFL, The Greatest Season That Was 93, and our newest podcast, The Final Word Cricket Podcast with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. I don't know which of those you're about to listen to, but whichever one it is, I hope you enjoy it, and I'm grateful for your time and enthusiasm. Thank you. All of our podcasts are supported by the generous team at A.V. Jennings. For more than 85 years, A.V. Jennings has created communities for people just like you. A.V. Jennings communities are designed for the way people want to live today. To find out more, visit avjennings.com.au. A.V. Jennings, your community developer. Thanks for listening, and thanks for supporting our sponsor, A.V. Jennings. Game Changers. The show about the people who make the shows, not the people behind the scenes, not the companies, the people behind the mics, the The people who put it all on the line, the people who put their personalities and lives on display every day and invite you to either love them or hate them. This is Game Changers, Series 3, UK. Hi, this is Craig Bruce and welcome back to Game Changers. So far, we've talked to Christian O'Connell, Ken Bruce, Jamie Theakston and Mike Toulon. Hope you've enjoyed the series up until this moment. And this week, it's one of talk radio's very best, Nick Ferrari. You know, you're you're talking to a guy who's fairly battle-weary now and I've been around, literally worked in three different continents and a series of jobs been sacked from some of the best jobs in the media so the relationship between me and Beth or whoever it is works so try not to interfere too much if the show's not going just just let him get on look I've got to say I'm a huge fan of talk radio it's a a, it's a weird thing you know as I've gotten older my thirst for information and people who can you know really dissect important issues has become more and more important in my life I I don't know why it is it just it's just happened over the last 10-15 years so I was really looking forward to meeting Nick you know one because he is so good at what he does and look if you're in Australia listening to this check him out or check out the website the lbc.com website leading Britain's conversation there's plenty of audio and visual content that you can see from Nick he's just so good at the art of broadcast and two the other thing I you know I was really keen to pick apart how he identifies a great story and what he does to insert himself into a news moment and the good news is that Nick talks really openly about his daily process So if you're doing talk radio and you want to get better at it, or if you're interested in the art of talk radio, I think you're going to really enjoy this podcast. My guest this week is Nick Ferrari. Nick Ferrari, welcome to Game Changers. Thank you for having me. So this podcast is a study of success in broadcast, and what I wanted to do was to talk to people who have had uh, long-term success on the radio and find out you know, what makes them great at what they do. Right. When you find out, can you let me know? (laughs) God knows I could do with some of (laughs) that. So LBC leading Britain's conversation and now leading UK radio ratings right at the moment. It's just extraordinary, the success over the last period of time. Commercial radio. Commercial radio, we need to say. The BBC still, you know, for listeners in Australia, probably can't quite work it out, but it's an absolute giant. But we're still giving them a good fight, and in commercial terms, yeah, we're doing very well. Tell me about the trajectory of LBC right at the moment. What's behind it? Well, a very committed and quite aggressive ownership. 
Yep. Um, and we need to say a word about people, uh, a company that owned it called Chrysalis, which really was the start of the transformation. Chrysalis was pretty much, it was uh, your listeners who've heard of uh, rock bands such as, or rock acts such as Christopher Berg yep. and um, Debbie Harry. Yep. That's where they made their money. Right. And then they got into a little bit of radio and they launched a massive network in the UK called Heart, which is even bigger now. And they did a little bit of telly and they just picked up LBC, which was a speech station that at that time was pretty unloved. It's the oldest commercial radio station in Britain, so about 43, 44 years old, older than Capital Radio. People were saying, oh, that music station in London, actually, LBC went on air a couple of weeks beforehand. But it's fair to say nobody quite knew what to do with it. And Chris has put a lot of money in it and certainly got it in the right direction. And then they cashed in, which is what companies do. And it was to LBC's benefit that was picked up by this company, Global, which now owns LBC. So we're sitting in the Global Studios uh, here in the heart of London, and as you've remarked, this is like a, a, it's a radio factory, it's a powerhouse it's you've got. And I don't know how many of these brands translate, but it's got Capital, it's got Classic, it's got Heart, it's got LBC, I've just mentioned it, it's got Smooth, it's got yep. so many. Yeah. So that's what's helped LBC, and it went national right? a little about two years or so ago, because they took the view that the population of London is around 8.5 million, and it was initially called London Broadcasting Company, hence LBC. And of that eight, eight and a half million, LBC, London at that time, had give or take about a million. And they thought, well, that's not bad going. We're not really going to be able to grow that much. So yep. we need to look elsewhere. So that's why they went, took it national on, di- on, di- on digital. Right. Let's go right back. So you've got, um, you've got journalism in yep. your DNA. Your father yep. had a press agency. Tell yep. me about that. Did you, you worked with him? Uh, no. I, uh, when I came along, I was the youngest of three sons. So he realised that, for, and press agencies is, you say I could take a certain part of the UK, in my dad's case it was Kent, and a story breaks there, and the national newspapers are all based in Fleet Street, and they need a bloke there quickly. A bus is ridden, ridden into ten nuns, or it might be in Chatham High Street, you know, about 40 miles out of London. So they, they effectively pay that day rate for the reporter to report. But all the papers want it. So if a story broke like that, the, the Daily Mirror, the Daily Express, the mm-hmm. Sun newspaper, all the titles that some of your listeners have heard of. So it was very successful. Three, three kids came along, so he thought he had to take a regular job, and he did, and he went for the London Daily Mirror and was very successful there. But I remember I would come home from school, and we're talking now in the... What are we talking now? We're talking in the 70s, uh, 60s and 70s. And obviously there weren't mobile phones and there weren't computers. You would read stories to what people call copy takers. So in the London offices there would be people with headphones on and reporters all around the country would be reading their stories to these people who would then tap it away into machines. and it would then get, So there would be a pile of stories for me to read when I got in. So as I got home before, before I did my homework or before anything like that, I'd be having a bowl of cornflakes or it was reading copy to the Daily Mirror, talking right. about a bus went into 25 nuns yeah. in Chatham High Street. And my two brothers would be doing the same to other papers. So I thought every family loved that. I didn't know that it was like, that didn't all families weren't like that. So there was news right, right from the word go. That's interesting because do, do you look back on that now and think uh, you've got this great ability to be able to communicate it, obviously, in such a, a, a meaningful way, but speaking um, out aloud, reading out aloud, that must have been a great foundational yeah. uh, um, starting point for you. Well, I think the other thing was that my dad, um, we have a lovely expression in England, kept a good table, which means was a very good host, and he would have uh, quite regular dinner parties. Right. And he would make a point of involving his three sons. So we would sit there. So he would have the Royal Correspondent of the Daily Mirror. He would have the Crime Correspondent. And the Daily Mirror is a big, powerful tabloid paper, like, like, the, yep. like the Sydney... Like the, it's a tab, tabloid yep. paper. Okay? Uh, and so you'd have the Crime Editor, you'd have the Royal Reporter. And they would tell stories. Right. And my dad could tell a story. And he'd be sitting back at the end of the dining dine table, puffing away on his pipe. And the Crime Reporter would say, or he'd say to the Crime Reporter, Tom, Tom, tell the boys, what's the truth behind that murder down in Bristol? Right. Oh, well, of course, we can't say it. 
We can't say, but it's a husband. They just can't know. And I'd be saying, well, this is, this is a bloody fantasy. And these people get paid, and they get paid really well. Yep. And they drive these sort of cars that are outside. <laughs> and, what, and they give them the car too? This is unbelievable. I want to do this. So uh, that's how I got into so it. So you yeah. joined a paper in 1981? Gee, I can't remember. Uh, yes, I think I did. And it was the Sunday Mirror. Sunday, yeah. It was the Sunday title of my dad. Yeah, yeah. so that, that dad got me that. Right. Well, sorry, dad got me the introduction. Sure. So he phones the guy who's running the Sunday Mirror and says, look, Nick is on a, a local paper in South East London. I, I think he's quite bright. Would you give him what they call a couple of shifts? So literally, it's a couple of days, right? Work, mate. If you're crap, they're not. You know, jobs sure. are hard to come by. They're I not going to. And yeah. I, I was crap, but I was cheap crap, so they hired me. So who did you study? Who did you observe through that period? You know, did you have mentors? Did you have someone oh, in your look, corner the, the who helped you? That dad. Um, but then I was very fortunate to quite quickly, actually, within about eighteen months to two years of being on the Mirror so Sunday Mirror, I went to work for Rupert Murdoch. Uh, and the, the, having exposure to people like Mr. Murdoch, a guy called Kelvin McKenzie, who was his uh, editor of The Sun for many, many years. Uh, my, my, I had, I would say, three of the best tutors you could possibly have in print journalism, which was my dad, Rupert Murdoch and Kelvin McKenzie. Oh, my God, if you've got any of those, you're doing well. I was fortunate enough to be exposed to all three. I heard Dan, it's rather, isn't it, the yeah. US uh, news anchor, say that journalists are paid to be sceptical, not cynical. Would you agree with oh, that? What a good line. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. I think if you do speech radio, you can be have a degree of cynicism. That's allowed because you have to project yourself into it. But I always tell people who work with me, when you ring the police and they say, there's absolutely nothing to worry about. Hampshire police say there's no problems at all. You know they are up shit street. They haven't got a bloody clue. Or the local authority, you know, Peterborough, Peterborough Council says everything's under control. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. They are bricking it. And that's what journalism has to be. Journalists are the people who, when you get to the scene of a crime or, or scene of an incident and the police tape is there, you're the one who wants to get beyond the people. You're like the emergency services. You start running towards the thing. You don't run away. So when did you cross over from newspaper to radio? And was it a part of, was it a plan? Was it a master plan to end <laughs> up here? <laughs> no, I always wanted to be what they call a Fleet Street editor. All the British newspapers are based right. in Fleet Street. Although it doesn't exist anymore. And I did actually get the editorship of a paper under the Express titles, but it never launched. It was going to be the London Evening Paper, so I'm probably the most successful editor they've ever had because I've never lost any sales. <laughs> Unfortunately, I've never sold a paper. Um, I, I was deputy editor of the Daily Mirror for a while, which was very exciting. Strange to go back to the paper that my, your dad had been on right. uh, and had been quite senior and, and, and do that. Um, no, it all happened by accident. I had a, the most tremendous career uh, with Rupert Murdoch. Just fantastic. Bounced around all different territories. Quite a long spell in the US working at Fox. Before Fox is the powerhouse that it is now. We're talking mid-90s. And then it all comes back to Kelvin. Kelvin McKenzie and I are working on a cable station, funny enough, owned again by the Mirror Group. This sounds so incestuous. And he decides to buy a, a radio station called Talk Radio mm-hmm. in the UK, which was a national station. And he employed me on a two-year contract. Right. I only got one year out of it before he fired me on the two days after Christmas in 1999. Or you were fired month. for what reason? Fired because he was taking it, turning it into talk sport. Right. And he said, look, I like you. I think you're a great bloke. But yeah. you're being replaced by a guy who played Scotland for Tottenham. And, uh, sorry, played soccer for Tottenham and Scotland. And, you know, Fair you're, enough. You're, you're fat <laughs> ass. You would never even have got up the halfway line. So gone. And uh, that's when I had to do some freelancing. Right. And, yeah. and, and so how, where did, how did radio reconnect for you then? I had a choice. It was as we came into the millennium, I remember. So I came into in the year 2000 without a job, which was a bit of a worry. And I thought, well, I've got a choice here. Either I can try and crawl back into newspapers because I had a decent reputation. Mm. I'd be able to be an assistant news editor or something, bloody thing like that. Or I'll just give radio a bit of a go. Yeah. And I picked up quite a lot of Five Live, of ra- uh, BBC Radio, sorry. Uh, I was subbing for a woman called Edwina Curry, who some of your listeners know. She had a, quite a big show in the 90s. And then I did some freelance filling for LBC, which was then owned by ITN, mm-hmm. which is uh, uh, the British Independent Television Network. 
And, um, yeah, they, they seemed to take to me, so I got a good run there. So I thought, well, let's give it a go. So you've talked about it being easier being on the centre-right of politics. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, it, on, on talk radio. What did you mean by that? Uh, because the joy of being on the right is that you can be fairly didactic. This is right, this is wrong. Mm-hmm. Migrants are this, migrants are that. If you're on the left, it's got to be, well, on the one hand, we should be doing this, but on the other hand, we should be doing that. And I think powerful radio, and if you look... I'm not as familiar with Australia as I should be, but if you look at the success of most of the speech radio experts in the US, most of them, most of them are to the right because they have a more compelling... By and large, they have a more compelling... Or a narrative that hooks with the listener in that it drives him or her absolutely mad, angry, or they completely buy it. So, I mean, I love the show. I I really do love the show. And I I heard it this morning, and, you know, you talked before about having a really clear and specific view, but you had a caller on the air at about 8.20 this morning talking about the immigration issue and and, uh, uh, British troops going into Africa. And what I loved about what you, the way you worked with that caller was you gave her space yep. and you allowed her to speak and you, you were very respectful through yes. that. It's really quite, yes. it's quite unique for a, a, a centre-right um, yes. talk host. And, and I hear that often with you. There's this space and there's warmth and there's respect, which is, it's not unusual, but when you hear it, I think you do it brilliantly. Well, it's very sweet of you. It's their moment in the sun, though, isn't it? It would be because I do it all day long, so I'm not that nervous before I go on air. But that woman, perhaps her family's listening, perhaps her kids are listening in yeah. the other room. Uh, unless she's just stupid or drunk or racist mm. or something like that, you should try. I think you get more if you empower and embolden the caller because mm. other people listening think, oh, that was nice, isn't it? Because she did say something rather stupid, but he kind of glossed over it. And I just think. What's that saying? Honey gets more than vinegar ever can. Right. That's kind of what I'm thinking when I'm doing it. The other thing I love about the show is the breadth and width of the topics. Mm. You talked about my show being a a rambling tabloid news conference. (laughs) All human tragedy is there, but also lots of light in the shade. Yeah. Do you deliberately design it that way? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think the best products are often if you make them for yourself. We have a supremely successful British newspaper called the Daily Mail, and the, the ed- its editor, Paul Dacre, has been there many, many years. He makes the paper for himself, and he knows, and everybody knows that. It says it's a paper that interests me. Kelvin McKenzie said exactly the same of The Sun. I would read The Sun. I want to make a show that I know that I would listen to. So I, I think if you sit there, I mean, th- things I hate about um, journalism, it's Tuesday, we must talk health, or it's Wednesday, we must talk um, uh, motoring. Bollocks. If a health story is good enough, you can talk about it on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, but you can talk about it all day long. And you, you just have to do stories that, that interest yourself, that you, you would actually say, if you were driving in your car, you would say to your husband or your wife, well, that, you know, that's really, that's really interesting. You know, there is no such thing as a fat gene, or there is such a Well, the reason you've got such a fat ass is because your mum's so fat, or what Whatever it might be, so that it actually resonates. This, you know, we better talk about Syria. No, mate, if it's if, if it's nothing happening in Syria, don't bloody well bore the listeners to death. So take me through the planning meeting when you come in. What what does that look like at the the planning? So you've got, I guess, a, a melting pot. You're laughing. The reason, yeah, I know this doesn't work, but the young woman <laughs> is very something? kindly what we call driving or making sure <laughs> yeah. this is recorded. Um, is the key in all of this. She right. just happens to be working a different shift. So we call it a set. There is no meeting. There okay, is no meeting. Really? The meeting is held on a mobile phone. Right. And, the young and, that, woman, and that's it. You know, everyone, there's different ways to yeah, get a yeah, radio yeah, show yeah, on here. Yeah. There's no problem well, with the, that. The, the way this works is, and she's supremely successful. Sadly, we're about to lose her because she's off to do other stuff. But anyway, her name's Beth, and she 
Well, I don't know what time she gets in, probably about 1, 2 or something like that. And the phone calls start from about 3, 3.30 or 4. Brangelina, Andrew, uh, Brad and Pitt have just split. Yep. OK, well, we won't do that on the showbiz side, but let's find out how much they're worth and let's get Hollywood right. lawyer, da-da-da-da. Yeah. Uh, Theresa May has decided she wants to um, send troops into... Oh, yeah, that's great. But also she'll ring and say stuff I don't care about. You yep. know, buses come off, buses, but a train is derailed in Hendon, no one's hurt. Bugger off, I couldn't give it down. So I'm called continuously. Um, from we, what time? From about 3 through to about 3 p.m. through to about 8 or 9. But bear in mind, I was news editor on The Sun, so I want the phone ring. And I think the world record calls about 25 to 30 calls in that period, Right, which is great. So it's it's instinctive? You hear a story, and do you know where to place it instinctively? Well, (laughs) I I know where I think it should go instinctively. Whether it's right, of course, is perhaps... But what what is to be applauded about LBC management is they just leave me to it. Now, the answer to that is, well, why wouldn't they? Because the show's doing rather well. Yeah. The numbers go. So I think if the show was in the toilet, they might have a view. But at the moment, they just say, oh, just leave him alone. He can shout at Beth all day long and tell her that this is crap and just go and make some news. Or if you can't find any news, make it yourself. So you, you, you have this terrific, respectful connection with the audience. Do you think about the audience when you're making these choices at three or four in the morning? Do you think that, yep, that's something well, that they all, would be interested yeah, in? Yeah, I think about the audience all the time. Do you time. know who you're talking to? No, I think, I think that can be a bit dangerous. I remember once... In the Daily Mirror, they decided we were speaking to a husband and wife who drove a Ford Mondeo and lived in Swindon. Well, I just thought that was bloody weird, to be honest. <laughs> Unless we're the Swindon advertiser. They're not really going to fly, is it? No, I think I don't think of any one specific person. If I did, it's probably... it's probably I'm probably thinking a mum who's just got back from... Or getting the kids to school yep. and driving back to home and then having a cup of tea or whatever. So, right. But I think it's dangerous you start to fall down that way or go down that path. You said, I can't expect listeners to tell me sometimes the most harrowing, moving, mm. upsetting or humorous stories about their lives if I don't open up about my own. Is there anything off the table for you on the air? Um, no, if my kids aren't uh, health, their, ki- their kids' health would probably be about the only one. But I've shared a lot. Hell, crikey, I've shared a heck of a lot. I mean, I've been, I've been pretty, it's pretty unfortunate. Really. I, I, uh, neither my dad nor my two brothers got through their 50s. They all died in their 50s. Right. I've only Health recently... Health related? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there are some mitigating circumstances. So it's quite a challenge for me. You know, I've yeah. got a few years to go, but am I going to get there? The listeners are having placing bets. They're hoping it's a negative. <laughs> uh, and I lost mum about two and a half years ago. But she made 93, so right. we've got to hope I've got mum's genes. So, yeah, I, but, but you, as I, think, I think you said there, you, if you expect a lot, you've got to give a little. Mm. Yeah, otherwise, why? Yep, Nick sharing his life with his audience. It's one of the many things that he does really, really well. More from him in just a moment. If you're listening to this on iTunes, we would love a review, particularly a positive one. Two thumbs up, five stars, four stars, whatever. If you could do that, that'd be great. And we'd love to know where you're listening from as well. You can drop me a note on Twitter at CB underscore Bruce. Still lots more to come in season three of Game Changers. And from seasons one and two, plenty of great interviews as well, including this one of the best on Australian breakfast radio right now, Amanda Keller. Doing daily radio, it's like a muscle. And now, if something, even something mortifying happens to me, I'm, I will almost instantly construct that into a way I can use the pain to tell the story. But that's what I meant before when I worked with Andrew. Andrew used to say to me, you're a walking anecdote. And I, it never occurred to me that I was. It never occurred to me that I had stories to tell, but he's to mine them from me. That's Amanda Keller. In season two of Game Changers, you can listen to her after you've finished with this. Nick Ferrari's brilliant story at radiogamechangers.com is more from Nick. 
You've been quoted as saying that Brexit could be the best thing to happen to the EU. Is it the best thing? Is is it the best thing that's happened to the LBC? And I mean that in a in a respectful way in terms of the richness of the story. Yeah, has has been tremendous for a station like this. The station's just had the um, listening figures. And as you will be aware, but perhaps not all your listeners, you, you get them in three monthly blocks, which mm. is you know, perhaps a little archaic. But we've just discovered how we fared up to and just over the first Brexit period. So, and um, it's the best figures the stations, I mean, ever yes. had, even when there were like only a few commercial stations. So, yes, that's a very good way of actually uh, doctoring that quote. Yes, it probably is one of the best things that could have happened to the LBC. So why is it such a powerful story? Because it was such a, a binary choice. It was such a yes or no. And it's such a... It's such a thing that everybody... I mean, it, it, it split workplaces, <clears throat> it split families. I mean, I don't want to over-egg it, but there were real issues because each side was so firmly... So it's bigger than a general election. It, it's way, way bigger than this because it, it was the yes were passionate and the no's were passionate mm. as well. And it was and it was divided 50-50, really, wasn't well, it? Yeah, it, it pretty well, yeah. So. And also, that's another twist, of course, because most folk went to bed on that uh, Thursday night thinking... Oh, they, the, the, the Leave campaign put up a good fight, but it's, of course it's going it to be happen. a remain. Of course it's <laughs> going to be a remain. And then when the first couple of results trickled in, yeah. probably a bit of BBC bias because they were desperate to see a remain anyway. So <laughs> those who had stayed up, oh, that's great. And of course, then they all start waking up. Oh, my God. Yeah. It's, we're on. We're off. So you inserted yourself so brilliantly into the story. Did you feel a sense of responsibility in terms of how to direct and tell the story as it was playing? I mean, where, where was your... I mean, it played out over quite a period of time. What was your headspace I through? guess initially it's probably what all newspapers and broadcasters, all media, try to do. And we did work hard at this. I, whether we did a good job is for others to uh, judge, is to give the facts, which was incredibly difficult. Right. Because every fact, actually, was o- most of them were open to interpretation, mm. um, even down to the number of people who came here. So it was either side could kind of spin it. Um, and I think so we had we had that duty the duty for what I do not the newsroom the newsroom is very different they have to present the facts but the duty that I can do with my show is to tell the the story of the main of the people involved and how it affects them and and that became quite compelling because you had massive figures in Britain such as Boris Johnson have these extraordinary when I say fights I mean political fights Mm. with the then Prime Minister David Cameron so you had these Massive, huge personalities. Mm. And then you had the great story, which Britons love, and I, I guess probably Aussies do too, which is the, the little guy, the triumph, which ultimately was the triumph of the little guy, because the, the campaign that should have won on funding and on skill and probably on narrative was absolutely the Remain campaign. Mm. They, they had the, pretty much they had probably the smarter, but they certainly had the more expensive campaign mm. and they had the slicker campaign, but the, it was the triumph of the little guy, which Brits love that story. So well. why did it triumph? Mm. I think it's a bit, we had something like the shy, the last general election, again, everybody went to bed saying, oh, it's going to be a Labour government, it's going to be a Labour government. In fact, it was Conservative government. That became known as the shy Tories, the shy Conservatives. So when people are polled, they didn't actually want to say, right. I'm voting Conservative because okay. it's a bit to the right. Yeah. I think when you are sitting around the coffee shops of various parts of London or trendy parts of the UK, your vote remain. Oh, of course, I'm, oh, yeah, me and my right. husband. Okay. Oh, my God, of course. No, they're not. Yep. When they actually drew the curtain and it was a yes or no, I'm out of here. Boom. Yeah. So the, the Nigel Farage, yeah. Nick Clegg moment, yeah. the, the debate was really oh, yeah. the, the, virtually the pinnacle of the, you know, the media component mm. of the story. Um, how did that come about and, and, and how did you um, We had a tremendous relationship that? with, well actually it involves um, the then mayor of uh, New York, Michael Bloomberg, because Nick Clegg goes through New York and Bloomberg, and they're having a private conversation, and Bloomberg is talking to Clegg, um, says I've got to go because I've got, I've got a radio show, I have to go and do a radio show. 
So uh, Cleggie says, what's that all about? So Bloomberg says, I go on, well, I'm afraid I don't know which station it is, but he said, I love it. I love it because I just get the message out there. There's no journalist who can interpret my words. There's no, there's no tape editor on TV who just cuts the bit that he or she wants. Somebody phones in and I get my, and I just make sure if I want to get the message about pollution or air quality or something like that, I listen to what they say and I answer a bit and then I just get my message in about air quality. So Cleggie thought, well, that's a bloody great idea. I'd love to do that. Well, if you tried to do, even if he'd phoned the BBC, they would still be having meetings now about whether or not the charter <laughs> permits them to do it. They would actually still be having working parties. Here at LBC, it was just thumping the desk, we want to do it. I happened to have met Mr. Craig at a, a, a dinner where, funny enough, I gave a speech and he attended and we genuinely got on. So the Lib Dems, his party, say, Mr. Clegg would really like to do it with Nick Ferrari, the station board we'd want to go, and so a great relationship was born. So we come to the great Europe question. Clegg was, was and still is a fervent, fervent believer in Europe. Mr. Farage was uh, making a lot of progress by saying how Europe was holding this country back. Mr. Farage had also started doing a phone-in programme because they became very in vogue. I had Boris Johnson, I had Nigel Farage, I had Nick Clegg. So it was called my two boys having a fight, effectively. Mm-hmm. I was able to bring them both. So th- the fact was that I could be like the honest broker in the middle to put them together. So, so you're, the, you're the broker in the middle yep. and you've got these people coming in with their, with their side of the story. How do you maintain a position of, you know, how do you stay in the middle and how do you... How do well, you... I don't always. Right. In fact, I, th- I think people who listen to me will probably have a pretty good idea on where I stand on moti- most issues. And... One of them, and a lot of people say, oh, you know, you, you're just saying that to annoy people. You can never do that. Mm. You can, because if on a cold November no one was ringing you, right, and you just couldn't get calls, so you thought, oh, I know, I know what I'll say. I'll say, I think Britain should join the euro, join mm. the single currency. That will get calls, mm. which, by the way, I don't. And, of course, the phones will all ring. You're mad. Then six months later when you've forgotten and you take your true position, oh, well, thank God we didn't join the euro, People said, well, hang on, six months ago, you said. So you have to believe the position you take. Now, that doesn't mean if I'm talking to someone, I can't say, well, surely the benefits of the euro, just to bring a bit more out of that person. But when it comes back to, you know, Nick's time or editorial or my time, I will say, look, the euro would have been an unmitigated disaster for this country. So so that's the way I do it. You have to be true. So in 2008, LBC was um, someone... I was talking to someone the other day, and they said that uh, it was the runt of the global litter. <laughs> and now it's a heavy hitter. It's an incredible story, isn't it? It's a, it from a radio perspective, it's yeah. an incredible story. It is, it is a remarkable story. So, so a lot of contributions, and obviously your show right at the front of that queue, you, you've got a very, very good controller of LBC. Yep. Can you tell me about him? Uh, James. Yes. James Rea, uh, James yeah, he, he, came from an, he came from probably the other biggest um, uh, independent group as regards speech radio in the UK. Uh, he was hired by our immediate bosses, uh, Richard Park, who had seen what he could do. Um, what's his ability? His ability is, when he's sober, his ability, I'm kidding, <laughs> I'm kidding, a joke. His ability, well, in my instance, his ability is it's the light touch management. Right. And that's what I like. You know, you're, you're talking to a guy who's fairly battle-weary now, and I've been around, literally worked yeah. in three different continents in a series of jobs, been sacked from some of the best jobs in the media. So being told light touch stuff like you know could you say good morning when you get to the weather or something like that you know could you say good morning joanna or something that honestly why don't you fuck off i really couldn't give a stuff about that <laughs> so it's light touch management and it's allowing and again like we just talked about the relationship between me and beth or whoever it is works right. so try not to interfere too much yep. if the show's not going just just let him get on with do it. Do you need objective feedback at this stage of your career? Oh, you always do that. And yeah, where are you getting it from? The, the minute you don't... Um, a little bit from James, but from from, from others. There's uh, uh, a couple of guys I work with. Uh, actually, I work with... They're both Murdoch guys. Um, in fact, I work with one of them in the US, and I work with one of them 
um, in the UK. And they, what I like about them is they won't listen for six months, mm. and then suddenly they'll listen. And they don't ring up immediately. But that's so called I, perspective, which yeah, is yeah, exactly yeah. The, the kind of feedback so that you could... So we're just BSing about something, and he'll say, oh, I listened to you last week. Oh, yeah, what, what, yeah, you were talking about grammar schools, or you were talking about David Cameron's work. And it's just, again, it's just, yeah, why didn't you think of doing this, or what about doing that? And between them, these guys have got about 60, 70 years of top-level tabloid. I mean, Mr. Murdoch ringing them up on a bad day because the sun has dropped sails. You, you, you're, you're, fairly, you're fairly battle-toughened to go through it. Tell so, me about uh, that, that phone call. What happens on the other end of the line? What, what, what does that look like? Well, you start worrying about the mortgage and how you're going to pay for the kids. Um, you obviously... Listen, I've taken calls. The, the, the problem is, and I'm aware where this is going out, it's going out on Australia, the trouble of working for Mr Murdoch is when he rings you and makes a suggestion, he's, he's genuinely always right. Yeah. I mean, it's the most... Un- it's uncanny how he does it. Uh, and he can be in a different country. He can be absolutely different country. I remember him once, I was running the uh, local newsroom in in New York for him, for Fox. So that's the Fox News for New York State, New Jersey and Connecticut. And he lands at the private airport and he phones through and he says, what's happening? So I said, well, uh, this and that. And, uh, unfortunately, another firefighter's died. Oh, is that right? I normally do an Australian accent on a toast. Where I, just, I said, oh, is that right? <laughs> yes, it is. How many did that make it this year? Oh, shit, I knew he'd ask that. Um, that makes it uh, 10, Mr. Oh, does it? Pause. I think you'll find it makes it 11. How does it? Uh, oh, right, okay. Then a bit more, a bit more, a bit more. Put the phone up, straight away through. How many firefighters? <laughs> uh, hang on a minute. How many? Oh, Nick, it's 11. Oh, shit. How does he? He just has this ability to hold on all the and time. And what is the subtext to that conversation? What's, uh, what's oh, you have to ask him. Right. You'd have to ask him. But what him. do you think he's saying to you when he's asking Get those? Get right. Right. Just be on top of it. Right. So, so... We, We've got a young audience listening to this podcast, oh, right. starting out in radio. Oh, we've got an older audience as well. But my, I'm, in my head, you talk about you know you're not necessarily having a, a, a specific listener, and I don't mm. have a specific listener for this podcast um, in terms of a single person. But a lot of people starting out in radio listen to this. So in terms of um, moving through journalism and into talk radio, what mm. advice would you give someone starting out? What would you tell? What would you tell a younger version of yourself if you're starting out again cool. at twenty? Um, what, what advice would you give? consume as much news from as many uh, sources now as you possibly could so in my days it was just be read all the papers and magazines mm. and listen to as much radio and tv so now you've got to be across everything realize w- what is a a a bugger me doris story so that is where you read it or hear bugger me doris because you can't believe what's happened can you learn that or is that innate is that just something that you know you you, you had that you know your you see, father seeing, obviously seeing had your dad running around saying, this is an incredible story, we've got to get reported right. out. It's sort of, it, you can't help but it drips into you. You yeah. know, you say, whoa, this is obviously... So, uh, can, yeah, yeah, I reckon you can teach it. Yeah, you, yeah, you can teach it. Um, and maintaining a sense of humour. You know, n- no one's ever died because we got a story wrong. It's not like we're surgeons or flying aircraft or something like that. So maintaining a sense of humour. And, and that would be the other thing that I, I would say about your show. There is this lightness and mm-hmm. in there, there, it's yes, it's news and it's and it's London today and all of the things that matter most. But there's a um, there's a lightness to it that I think is is really unique and unique um, globally. I mean, it's not something. Well, it's it's no, no, it's true. I, I mean, there's certainly nothing. Like it on Australian radio from a right. breakfast perspective in yeah. terms of your no, but you've your got approach. some sensational oh, we, speech. We absolutely do. But that, that lightness of touch, it's interesting you picked up on that. That is the tabloid news conference, which right. I've sat in right. from what's, uh, two different titles, uh, the London Sun and the London Daily Mirror. And it can be a really, really dark day, a really dark day. Someone, it could have been a tragedy in Syria, there could have been a bomb. And there is that, 
and it, it's it's sort of like the police as well. There's mm. a sort of quite ghoulish sense of it because you're dealing with this every day. If you actually let it in, yeah. you wouldn't last more than a week because right. you're just dealing with children being murdered and crimes and paedophiles and rapists. So there's this sort of streak all the time. The way to the the way to sweeten rather bitter pill of the day's news is to just inject appropriate levity. So not to make inappropriate gags, but you just right. have to. But a gallows humour. Yeah, Here gallows humour is a better <laughs> way of saying all of that. So what has changed and what has stayed the same? Watching your show, listening to your show, seeing the full multi-platform approach. Um, has that changed your approach to a story and the way yeah. you go about the show? Yeah, massively. Has it really? Yeah, massively. I wasn't expecting that answer. Um, because whenever we can, we do try and uh, see how we can put some... Here's a classic example. It's a classic example. We had a big story here in London where literally a bunch of old geezers over an Easter Bank holiday weekend... Uh, managed to dig and uh, dig drill an enormous hole through a thick thick concrete wall something like seven foot thick uh, under some jewelers in Hatton Garden which is a very expensive part of London and they got in and they got into everybody's safe deposit box and they made off with seven million quid over the Easter weekend and they drilled a hole just big enough just big enough for one of them to crawl through open all the boxes it was a great story and they did it with the drills going and all over Easter holiday weekend so that's a good story right yeah no question we'll do that as a story what makes it a better story how can we make it so that there's some visual impact? We went to a place where they've got the sort of cutter that mm. these blokes use, and we got our reporter, who's a very, quite a slim young girl called Charlotte, and we, sh we gave her three hours, because that's the duration of my show, which is also believed how long it took. She had to ensure she drilled the hole through the concrete, Brilliant. and she crawled through, and we just kept going back and forth. How are you getting on? You heard the drill in the background. Brilliant. Well, I don't think we're going to get so we're maybe about half. We've had a breakthrough, Nick. And now whether she was playing like I've no idea, mm. but I, I think we're going to get. And we kept it to like the last three minutes before. Now. It's fun to listen to on the radio. Mm. It gives the thread that everybody... Yeah. So you're in your car for an hour. Oh, shit, I've got to get out of the car. I wonder if Charlotte ever got through that hole. And if you can watch it on video, you actually see the kid going through the hole. I saw you um, broadcasting using the police spit mask. Yes, yes. It's brilliant. I mean, it, I mean, it was it was comical. You're trying to put the thing on and putting your headphones back on and trying to put your glasses yeah. on. And yeah, the commissioner was, wouldn't wear one, unfortunately. Was that your idea or was that a team uh, idea? No, that was my idea. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And 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 sitting on the floor. That was because yeah. Jeremy Corbyn, who's the right. leader, current leader of the Labour Party, said that he couldn't get a seat on a train, which is a big problem in yeah. England. But somebody couldn't try it. He could get a seat. He was just making a point. So I decided to broadcast sitting on the floor with so, my chair by my side. So once again, is that an eight? Finding an angle. Some would say, "Hey, you're finding an angle for it." That's a real tabloid it. stunt. That's a real. That day that I did that, I'm doing it on the day. The next day, in I think the Sun or the Mirror, they had reporters <laughs> sitting on the floor. You know, it, it's just what it's just what you do. Yeah, it sounds really. It's what you just normally. It's just it's just the thought process. Yeah. So that idea of. I guess the leading part of leading Britain's conversation, you're absolutely doing that and you're leading from the front. And mm. um, I know you're a busy man. I wanted mm. to thank you so much. Oh, for not at all. Time. I'm it's sorry, I haven't got more time. And, and, and thank you. Gosh, you've reminded me of some highlights and some lowlights. <laughs> <laughs> Nick Ferrari, thanks for thank your time. You. Awesome. Great. Cheers, buddy. Talk radio fans, did you enjoy that? Nick Ferrari, I hope you did. It was an absolute pleasure to spend some time with him. And as I said, for Australian listeners to this podcast, if you want to check out some of the work that he does, go to the LBC website. You'll be absolutely impressed. It's still to come in Season 3 of Game Changers Radio UK. One of the pioneers of UK radio and one of the biggest names in Australian media right now, Clive Dickens. And of course, every episode of Game Changers is available at radiogamechangers.com, including our first UK Game Changer, Christian O'Connell. I managed to cobble together a demo tape and I sent it off to a load of radio stations. And I, I think I must have had about 13 rejection letters. Several of them 
said, this sarcastic style you're going for is not going to catch on. But then one guy called me in for an interview and he said, this is really funny, but I'm not going to give you a job. I could give you a weekend overnight shift. And I'm like, please give me that. I want to be a DJ. He goes, I could do it now, but it will stop you getting as good as you can be. There's a voice in you. Mm. You need to go and live a life. Mm. And then come back years from now and talk about that. Hey, so many great stories from Christian O'Connell. If you haven't checked it out, find some time this weekend. You'll thank me later. It really is a great interview. And we'll see you next week for Game Changers with Clive Dickens. Game Changers Radio is a production of Craig Bruce Coaching and Bad Producer Productions. Subscribe at iTunes or download episodes at radiogamechangers.com.